Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I'm your host, Marcus Gillis, and we are recording live from Banjo, Colorado. Population growing. Welcome to episode number 20 of the Live from Banjo podcast. Hope you all had a wonderful Mother's Day or just an enjoyable weekend if Mother's Day wasn't a part of your plans. In this week's interview, I chat with the slide guitarist, banjoist, I guess I could have said multi-instrumentalist, but we'll just keep moving forward, singer and songwriter, Christina Vane. And today we have my favorite co-host with us, Crystal, here tonight. Well, hey there, Marcus. How are you doing? Good looking. <laughs> what you got cooking? I have got nothing cooking. I don't cook. I, that's, that's true. Yeah, it's not a thing I do. I just married you for your good looks and co-hosting skills. Yeah, my ray of sunshinedness. Yes. Christina Vane crosses many genres with her songs, seamlessly transitioning from folk to rock to the Delta blues to old time. Growing up in Italy, England, and France and speaking multiple languages has not kept her from embracing American culture and music. Christina was born in Italy to her Guatemalan mother and Sicilian-American father. She has loved music from the time she was a child, and though she is classically trained in voice and played the flute as a child, she eventually made her way to the guitar. She moved to America after high school to attend Princeton University, where she studied comparative literature. While in college, she played songs for her friends and began songwriting. While working in England over a summer, she saw Sam Green in the Midnight Heist and was taken by the slide guitar, which she soon directed her full attention. After Princeton, she moved to L.A. to immerse herself in the music scene and began busking and playing open mics around Venice Beach, where she honed her chops on the bottleneck slide and eventually embraced the claw hammer banjo while working at McCabe's. She recorded one EP while in L.A. that is heavily influenced by blues and rock. However, she began to travel and tour, and her musical tastes and styles continued to expand as a result. At first listen, you might not question if someone told you she had grown up on the bayou with a bottleneck slide in hand. But while living in Venice, she took her first summer tour across the U.S., and the experience of the trip not only inspired Christina to pack her things and head south to Nashville, but also inspired much of the imagery for her first full-length solo album, Nowhere Sounds Lovely, which was released April 9th of this year, 2021. But Christina has been busy during the pandemic, and since getting to Nashville, she has released two additional EPs in 2020. You can find out more about Christina's music and touring schedule at ChristinaVane.com, which you can also find the link in the show notes, or go to the guest page at LiveFromBanjo.com. And it is also available in my bio at LiveFromBanjoPodcast on Instagram. Thank you so much for everyone that is listening. Please tell your friends, family, and complete strangers about the show. Share it early and often. And again, please follow us on Instagram at Live From Banjo Podcast. And please subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, remember to set up your reminders for the show, whatever platform you choose to listen on. Okay, Crystal, so tell us what we got for the wrap-up tonight. All right. So in the wrap-up, we go over briefly. And by briefly, I mean he really deep dives on the topic and it goes on for several minutes about the history of Italian cuisine. Definitely talked about my favorite style of pizza, which can only be found apparently in the state of Iowa. Marcus gives his opinion on the greatest actor of all time. I didn't say he was the greatest actor of all time. I just think he's I think Michael Keaton is understated. He also talks about his commonality with Christina and how they both cannot give blood in the United States because of mad fucking cow disease. Or Canada or Australia. Oh, good to know. 
And we talk about Christina's road trip slash tour through the Western United States where she camped in Zion and some of the other national parks. And we spend a little bit of time chit-chatting about how much we love camping in all of those places. And that's how I knew she needed to be a guest on this show because I started listening to her album and I was like, oh, I love that place. Oh, I love that place. Oh, I like that place too. And this is a great song. And this is a great song. So thank you, everybody. And now please enjoy my interview with Miss Christina Vane. How are you doing? Good. That's the second time I've heard that noise. That's the uh, that's the Squadcast little... Oh, cool. Yeah, I've, I've thought about putting it in on the show just so people know that my favorite little noise that I get to hear. I'm just pissed you can't see earrings when you wear headphones. <laughs> Me right. too. You should get on it. I was a very effeminate looking young man when I was younger. Like once I grew facial hair, I grew facial hair, but uh, I was a very late bloomer, so I was very insecure and uh i didn't think earrings were the right thing because until i was like 15 i had long hair this is the first time i've had long hair in 25 years but um when i was 15 i had like hair down to my shoulders and i always went to lunch with like my mom and me and they would go how are you ladies doing today nice and so i I was very uncomfortable about it (laughs) so you're in nashville yeah sure am. stuck there for a little bit longer uh you know some plans to get out this summer so yeah did you move in 2019 uh, i moved in 2018 to october 2018 so you got to be out there for a little while before everything shut down oh yeah yeah how'd you meet bronwyn it's a great question <laughs> i really don't couldn't tell you probably through bluegrass wednesday so i will admit that i think we have 16 episodes out now or something like that and you are the first guest that i had based off of somebody's recommendation oh cool that's awesome i always ask people you know anybody you know that's up and coming and maybe want to do something like this or anybody you just think would be a good fit for the show and she threw out your name oh hell yeah so i checked out your music and then i said yes definitely that is a person that i would like to have on the show then i passed the message Well, I don't like to be disgenuine, so I don't want to talk to somebody where I'm like, yeah, I really love your album. And I'm just Mm. Yeah, totally. I mean, I know uh, quite a few folks personally on the the list of people that you've interviewed. So I'm glad that we found each other. Yeah. You just put out an album pretty recently. Did you end up putting that out independently? Yes, I did. April 2nd, it came out. And by the way, if people are listening and they're getting persnickety about the fact that there's background noise from my side, it's because my cat ran away and I have to leave my door open. So if you hear cars and stuff, it's because my heart is slowly breaking and hopefully you can get over it. I hope that the cat comes back. (laughs) I hope so too. It's been a day. It's my first time having a cat get out like that. So I'm just very nervous. I apologize if I'm not my normal awesome self. It's tough. My dog is, um, my dog's sleeping right there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. What's your cat's name? Luna. I hope Luna just just took a john around the neighborhood. I so too. So you have a very, I would say, a clear, like generic American accent. Yes. Um, but you were born in northern Italy. Mm-hmm. I'm not as familiar with Italy, but in northern Italy, what is the food like in northern Italy? It's not like the more of our stuff or like the Americanized Italian food comes more from the south, right? Mm-hmm. 
So what is what is food like? Is it closer to like French or what would it be like up in Northern Italy? There's just all con- like so Italy unified very late compared to a lot of other European countries. So the regions have maintained their flavors, their dishes, their dialects are a lot stronger than um, in a place like France or, or other places where things have unified a long time ago. So it really just depends actually what region you're in, because if you're in the region that borders Switzerland, you're going to find some like Swiss stuff, like inspired stuff or stuff that kind of crosses the Alps. The mountain towns in Italy have very interesting, very different food. And Sicily has like wildly different food from the north in general like we don't really do a lot of nut sauces with our pastas like in Sicily in the south there's a lot of almonds and nuts and things that grow in those orchards it's just not as big of a part and we wouldn't ever really do like much lemon pasta there's just certain dish or like chickpea stuff that's really big in Sicily because of the North African proximity so it's just pretty different I mean I can't really go through like the history of Italian cuisine on this <laughs> yeah. podcast to be honest so you'll have to go find yeah find out for yourself okay that's that sounds good. I would, I'd like. I'll invite you to my house. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I mean, we were just barely going to dip into Italy, but <laughs> my wife and I, this last year when the pandemic hit, we were supposed to go to do the Mont de Blanc. Oh, yeah. So we've pushed it back. We're actually going to, not going to go this year, but we're going next year. Cool. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, that's going to be awesome. So your father is Sicilian, but he was born in the States. Mm <laughs> How long was he in the States before he went back over to Italy? His whole life. Oh, he was. Mm-hmm. He's a, he's Italian-American. He's second generation. So he moved to Italy um, after meeting my mom to have a family and pursue that job he took. So did he meet your mom here in the States, obviously, then? Yeah, my mom is Guatemalan, but she came to the States for college. And they met in grad school, getting their master's in international relations at American University. Very cool. You have a brother, and he's a musician as well? Yeah, well... I guess that you get into an interesting conversation about what a musician is. He is a musician. He doesn't pursue it professionally, so he's not a musician. But yes, he's a very talented player. He and I both didn't grow up in these traditions, but he actually started to get into old time music around the time I did. But he has taught himself how to fiddle, which is really impressive because I'm trying to teach myself right now and it's very, very hard. So he's not a whiz kid, just like I'm not. But we both really enjoy this music and uh, we share it when I go back back to see him and stuff like that. My interpretation does not entail somebody having to do it professionally. Yeah. I know a lot of great musicians that, uh, that, you know, nobody will ever know. Totally. You know what I mean? Right. Well, I mean, I do feel that if you're describing someone as a musician, though, it kind of implies that that's their life choice as well. Yeah. Like there, there is an overlap where there are people that choose to do this professionally <laughs> like idiots. So, you know, I do think that that is a little different than someone who maybe is a musician in their home, but isn't a musician that's like having to deal with bookers. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so you were born in Italy and then you moved to France and maybe like teenage years? Um, no, I was really young, actually. I moved around like three times before I was 10 years old. I was in England and, and France. And then I went back to Italy in middle school and went back to France for high school. I did that as well. I was born in California and then we moved to England. Oh, cool. And then we moved back to California and then Texas and then Georgia all by seven years old. Okay. So yeah, you get you get it. I spent about three years in England when I was a little boy. Me too. Ages three to six. I was 
two to five. So it's not a, it's not a large looming memory in my life, but I've traveled a bit as a person, as an older person, but you grew up playing piano and singing and playing the flute. So you're a flautist. Yeah. A flautist. I was. You don't play the flute anymore? Not much. I picked it up back during a pandemic for like a week and I just don't really play it that much anymore. I have like four other instruments I'm trying to get good at, you know, that are like directly relevant to the music I make. So the flute kind of took the back seat. Yeah. I mean, I've been playing guitar for like 30 years now and, and play the banjo as well. Started on the bass. This was my first instrument was the stand up bass. But yeah, I'm terrible at all those instruments and... I practice and do all the things. So I understand there's just not enough time. Mm-mm. You came to the States to go to Princeton. Yeah. And you were studying comparative literature there. Mm-hmm. Did you want to be a writer as well? Or were you picking something to uh, to get you through college? Kind of both, honestly. I've always been a pretty high achiever in school. Like I like, I'm nerdy. I worked hard. And so, yeah, I didn't really think that music was like a viable option, to be honest. And even at my school, particularly the program I found was like mostly for classical or contemporary like orchestra wannabe players or jazz people that really wanted to do that. And there obviously was a little bit of other stuff, but mostly the program didn't seem to accommodate a lot of like independent writers. So yeah, I did something that I thought I would find really enjoyable. Comparative literature is basically English, but you need to speak three languages and you study literature from different cultures. So it's for people like me that are not from one place and don't want to be limited to just English because there's a very wide scope of literature globally. Mm -hmm. So I thought that tangibly, if I didn't want to do IR myself, like I could be a translator for the UN. I could be a writer. I could be a Duolingo writer. Um, There are a lot of things I could have done probably, but I uh, decided to do music instead. You weren't speaking about the app Duolingo. You're talking about like a Duolingo writer. Yeah, like a bilingual writer. But it's funny, my daughter and I, my daughter's nine and uh, we do Duolingo together. So we're both studying Spanish at the same time and we can like keep up with each other's progress on on Duolingo. So yeah, I've never used that app. It's uh, it's basically a game, but I think it's great for kids because it's like playing a video game almost, but you're learning Spanish or whatever language you use. <laughs> Did you ever watch House? No. Dr. House. He was a, he was at, what is it, Plainsboro or whatever, the, the teaching college in Princeton. I don't know. That was just his location. Oh, I gotcha. While you were there, were you playing a lot of music? Yeah, I've always played a lot of music. It just hasn't always been my own music, you know, but I was writing by then and playing on my guitar in my uh, dorm room a lot, playing for my friends, playing a lot of covers that I would learn at the time, like Bonnie Vare or whatever. But I was writing too. And I was, I had briefly recorded in London, like my senior year as a gift. It was a birthday gift because my dad knew some guy who had a little studio and gave him a good price. And it was like my birthday gift to go record a couple songs there. And it was kind of the only time in my life that I've recorded something fully without any expectations or any plans to do anything with it. I wasn't like a musician yet. I just liked singing and wrote my little songs. And and the way I looked at it, I was just kind of like a documentation of these things. The way I write down poems, it was the same thing. And it wasn't until I was older that um, I think after college, actually, my graduation present was also a recording session. My dad knows me very well. He was like, she doesn't want some kind of fancy thing. She wants a fancy 
fancy recording session. That's pretty awesome. So I'm super thankful to my dad. He's always been a big supporter of what I do. You're playing guitar and then you graduate from Princeton and you moved out to California with your boyfriend. What inspired you to do that at the time? I will say he followed me. Okay. Um, in the sense that I would have gone there anyway, <laughs> uh, just didn't necessarily want to break up, but I was going to go live in the LA either way. Yeah. I, uh, needed a place to live. New York seemed like my personal hell. I'd spent a lot of time there and it's very fun when you don't live there, I think. And everything's different for everybody, but I really didn't want to be in New York. And also everyone from my school kind of funneled to New York and I just didn't want to be at, like college round two. So not a lot of people were going to LA. My brother lived in LA. It's gorgeous. It's the food's amazing. You know, the lifestyle is pretty awesome. So I decided to go there because there's obviously music industry and it's not like there's nothing going on there. And I went, I went there for four years. I was there for four years. I should say I lived in Venice and then I moved here. Venice is a nice little spot. I moved out to LA. I went to film school out there and then ended up working in the film industry. And I was in really crappy neighborhoods like Hollywood and North Hollywood. And I did not love it, <laughs> but it, I didn't have a community too. And that's what I think like Venice at least has like pretty really strong community a, actually. Yeah. I went every Wednesday to the open mic and those people have formed like a lot of my experiences and the people I met through those things, mutual friends of the people that I, you know, that are staples in that scene have done things like, you know, gotten me to Taos for a festival that one of them started to put on every year there. And then that sort of spurred me to want to travel and do my first big tour, which is the tour I I wrote this album on. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. And when I go back, things always change. It's a big city, but I always feel really loved when I go back, the people have my back and there's always like, you know, the, some staples that you just see every time. So, yeah. And I think I've heard you say that your music though was kind of well received in, in your area, maybe not as hundred percent right for LA. When I was there, the, the Americana scene was this very small little niche group of people and it could kind of have people that kind of crossed over into blues or even into punk a little bit, but it was a, it was definitely a very small group. Yeah. I didn't even really know about the term Americana and what that means. Right. I don't, I still don't. <laughs> I mean, I <laughs> actually have come to really like it because I, I do too. I, I'm not a traditionalist and I don't, I'm not a purist, so I don't make one genre of music. And if you do, that's awesome. But like, that's definitely not what my record is. I have a lot of different sounds, but that to me is, like the whole concept behind Americana is it's not about what genre you want to apply to this artist. It's about whether you like that artist or not straight up, you know, like yeah. they are the uni unifying force. And that's how I hoped my album would be received was like, yeah, there's some old time banjo sounding stuff. There's like generic, just JJ Kaylee kind of music. There's, you know, string bandy sounding stuff. And then there's some like rock songs on there too, with slide guitar yeah. and some bluesy finger style stuff. So it's kind of just like, everything from my brain in CD form. So I read CV and, uh, and I was like, why does she keep talking about her, uh, <laughs> you know, like thinking curriculum your day. And then I'm like, oh. you idiot, that is her initials. You. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so talking about that, you know, you've, have these kind of blues and delta blues and folk and rock and he said some old-timey kind of influences on the album did you ever when you were in la did you ever get into ben harper who kind of crossed over with this slide guitar to give her hear him no i honestly didn't i mean i've heard about ben harper i've seen him play some lap stuff 
I could get more into him, but kind of been more preoccupied with like 1905 to like 1960. That's more my window. <laughs> These days I've been into more contemporary stuff just to try and get hip and broaden my, I don't know, musical taste. But really I find that I'm trying to get hip for other people so I don't look like a total jackass when they're like, hey, do you know this person that's doing what you're doing or in your scene? And I'm kind of like, no, I'm too busy listening to Curly Weaver and these random people that died a long time ago. So I'm trying to just be better about it. My knowledge of like the blues and stuff is is one of my weak areas. You know, like I know Blind Willie Johnson and Skip James and Charlie Patton, Book of White and some of those, but I'm it's very periphery. I haven't spent enough time delving into it. I like a lot of it. I just Well, there's a lot to listen to and it can get overwhelming. I mean, the world, there's so much music. When I was growing up, if you did not have access to a hard copy of either it was a record or a cassette or a CD, then you didn't get to hear the music. Me too. You're up in the 90s. We did not have Spotify. Yeah. I got LimeWire in the 2000s. But when I was growing up, if you didn't have a CD or a cassette, you didn't hear it. My first music was all on CDs. Yeah. When did you uh, hear you know, the first blues and slide guitar that really kind of transferred you into wanting to do that? Uh, the accurate answer is actually in England at proud to barn camden and i was playing there for the summer you know weekly more or less i always played the earlier day sh- slots because i was just like you know noob with a guitar that could sing songs but was still figuring out my sound and everything yeah they let me play you know most weeks during an earlier slot and there were different stages too there's like the outdoor more casual stage and then the indoor room and one night this band was coming and everyone was excited about it and they were like you should stay they're really good and this guy is called Sam Green and the Midnight Heist I actually haven't really checked on what they're up to and that's a good example of what I was just talking about where I'm like oh cool I'm not gonna listen to any of your music I'm just gonna get inspired by this thing and delve into the OGs Yeah. so I feel a little bad about that because I never really got into his music I just remember that show really vividly and seeing him play lap slide and and wanting there was a song in particular called miles away and it just has this killer slide riff and i was like i want to learn that then i realized i wanted to write in that style too and then when i moved to la was when i heard delta blues and realized there's like a whole thing but actually when i first heard slide it was in a contemporary british folk band they had a stand-up bass and acoustic but it wasn't a traditional thing and they rocked out and it was grooving and my first songs that I wrote on slide were kind of like that like restless and wiser on my older EPs like I don't know how to explain it. it's just more contemporary sounding maybe yeah no I think like that's <clears> why <throat> I was mentioning Ben Harper you know he can go in a bunch of different directions he had recently put out this kind of thing where he went back and and just played the whole album on a lap slide and do you play lap very often or I, I usually see you with never oh never I was I saw him and was like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Um, And that's how I got into bottleneck slide. I was like, I'm not relearning this instrument. I'm already bad at like, just no. You know, one of the things about the slide guitar that I think you can only understand if you see it live and in person is that there's something about that instrument that can really take the soul and emotion of the person on stage, especially when they are the main focus, like you or it's a singer, songwriter, like player. There's a, an emotion that can come out of that instrument that I think is really incredible, but I don't always know that it transfers to 
records as well as some other instruments. You know, it's like one of those when you see it live, it has a power and like a essence that fills the room that I think sometimes get lost in the recordings. Do you feel that way? Honestly, I don't. I do. I think that what you're describing is actually just true of like almost anything. Uh, You know what I mean? I think it's like kind of hard, like, because I know what you're saying, but I really just don't think that even singing a song is really that different when you're on stage and you're watching someone's face, like when they're expressing this note or this feeling or this word that they're singing. And it's true. Like when you watch someone play slide, there's so much. You just look at their shoulders coming up with emotion and the way they're playing that to me is like what gets lost on the record. So I, you know, so in a way, like, yes, I agree that does get lost because you can't see what the expression is going behind it. And in fact, I look at slide guitar a lot like singing mm-hmm. um, just because you have to use your own taste for like vibrato, which is the same for fretted guitar, but slide guitar, it's even more at the forefront is like what you do with the tone. And even with one note, it's just like, how are you going to hold it? You know, how are you going to slide into it or out of it? Yeah, I think that's something much like any instrument that kind of just gets lost if you're not watching the emotion that goes into it. And hopefully you try and communicate that over the record. But maybe I'm just feeling really emotional about live playing because we haven't done it in so long that I'm like, oh, I just would want to watch anybody on any instrument because it's so much better than even a live stream. Like, I don't, maybe it's not even visual because I haven't felt like a sincere connection in a long time with the people I'm playing in front of until I played Station In, you know, a few weeks ago. And that's because I don't think you can unless it's live. Yeah. I think it's like a different kind of connection. Sure. But there's just something about being physically there and seeing the sweat on their forehead and like smelling the same air that that person is smelling and being in a room or even if you were just alone I guess I guess it'd be the same thing but yeah I don't know yes I miss live music a lot I've gotten to go to two socially distanced shows here in the last few months but basically it'd been almost a year prior to that same it was just nice to be in the room. Yeah. And I guess that's another thing is you can actually feel the music and I think maybe that's something that I'm talking about with the slide is it's it's something that's actually right. literally you can feel and you I think that part gets lost in the translation of a record. Totally. Your new album, you talked about that you were uh, traveling around on that five month tour and a lot of those songs are inspired by some of the different places that you went and they're some of my favorite places in the world sweet (laughs) they are some of the coolest places i think i mean my wife and i go over and my daughter we go over to utah multiple times a year um we're rock climbing family as well so we like to get into a lot of those those places but some of the places up by you know up in wyoming and um they're just the prettiest places on the planet and I heard you doing this tour where you were camping through all of it and yeah it sounded like I don't know a dream that's just what I want as a 41 year old I want to go back and have that experience uh I just got like involuntary goosebumps just hearing someone understand how I feel about the tour it, that's how I felt it was a dream I feel like it was something that I, I can like cherish for a long long time 
even though I have driven around the States and gone back to those places since, it's not the same as it was such a like butterfly coming out of the cocoon kind of vibe for me, just because I just think I came into myself so much on that trip. I learned so much. And it did relate back to me personally, a lot of it. it a lot of it was just objective, geographical, anthropological, like cultural stuff, which mm-hmm. I really love as someone who's moved around. The States is so diverse and getting to to know some of these really unique and very like specific uh, smatterings of culture that are in places that aren't like LA, where there's hundreds of thousands of people coming in and, yeah. and changing that culture in a, in a good way. Yeah. These are places sometimes that are preserved. And like, that was so cool. The music side of that was obviously super inspiring, especially when I got to the Carolinas and I could really sense like, oh, this is like an actual thing here, you know? But the traveling was a, per- it was a personal journey. I was always a city kid. Uh, we didn't grow up camping. I had just gotten into California style camping, which is so easy. Mm-hmm. Like you can't even have fires mostly. So you just bring your food from the supermarket and hang out with your friends. It was so easy. You know, my first stops were like in Glacier Park in April oh. and in Yellowstone and places where there might be rain or snow even or bears or things that I was like just not used to dealing with. And and it was just so thrilling honestly to have to do that stuff and and to get wiser as I went on and like I kind of stopped staying in the national park so much because I realized I didn't like that as much as the backcountry stuff and Mm -hmm. the dispersed camping that I would find so by the time I got to Utah I did spend like five days in Zion and I had like wished the whole time that I was dispersed camping just because it was like families everywhere (laughs) yeah I was also really naive which I look back now and I'm like that's adorable. But I really thought that national parks were wild and that if you didn't have firewood, you would just not have. It's like there's like a store right in the middle. You know, there's Ugh. a camp host. Everything is super safe and curated. And that's great, you know, for people to enjoy nature. But I really had this idea of like 1950 where if you didn't find the ranger on a hike and you got lost. You could just get lost, you know. Right. I mean, and you can. I mean, there's some. You can go on some serious. You totally can. I did a few things here and there, like great hikes. You can get lost on any hike, but I meant the experience of staying in a a national park is like literally not wild at all. Mm -hmm. At all. Yeah. No. You know, there's just lights. There's a bathroom with water. There's you run out of food. You just hop to the store. It like is not the same as when you go to a dispersed camping sites and it's like 20 miles in. And if you forget something, it's kind of a big hassle. And even that's pretty comfortable, right? Like compared to backpacking when you're actually just at the mercy of what you brought in. Have you gotten to do any backpacking? Since then, I was supposed to do my first backpacking overnight in Zion. And you have to get a permit and everything. But I, this is one of those annoying things where like the park sometimes are in these places where there's only a few roads. And the place I was supposed to do the hike was close on the map, but it was like two hours by car. And I didn't time it right. So I started too late and I missed the permit. I would have gotten there after dark. So, and I just didn't feel comfortable doing that. I'm not like at the level where I want to sit up camp at dark and walk in at dark. So I didn't get to do it then, but I did the fiery gizzard here in Tennessee this summer which was just an overnight trip, but it's like this crazy 12 mile hike. That's like the most insane, just like stumbling over these mossy boulders. The trail is just like wild and does all these weird things. And there's a lot of bluffs and like cutouts and little scrambling areas. So that was a really, really cool experience. And in high school, I did an outward bound trip. It was pretty gnarly, but I just don't even consider that my own 
achievement, even though I chose to do it and I did it. And it was like 360 kilometer hike through Scotland for three weeks. We only got refilled twice. So it was pretty intense, but I never did anything again like that. So I don't, I feel like it was like a one-off that I did almost to see what it was like. And now I'm just interested in doing it often and in smaller, less epic journey. I don't need to do three weeks, but I really would love to do like a few day hike with someone else this as the weather gets better again. So yeah, I love hiking. (laughs) Well, if you, if you come out to Colorado and you have a break in your tour, my wife and I, we can, we can all go backpack. She, Sounds she awesome. loves it. You she guys does. could maybe teach me how to do basic climbing because I don't want to become like a climber. I don't need another hobby to suck all my money and energy, but I know I would probably like it. So for sure. And I have a friend that's a, a gym owner here in Denver. He's got ownership in a couple of gyms. So yeah, if you, if you're ever through and even if it's on a short visit and you just want to go to like the gym for a half day. Well, actually, I should be playing Laramie, Wyoming in August. So I was planning to fly to Denver, hopefully get a few shows there and then do Laramie. So I will definitely holler if I come that way. My daughter is starting to get into backpacking now. She's done her first overnight last year at eight or maybe she was seven. I guess it would have been pre-pandemic. So she was seven (laughs) and she did her first. It was like a the the whole thing it was it was a loop but it was through a slot canyon so it was kind of really cool. killer lo- location but she uh, she did it. it was like a I think it's a total like maybe like a twenty mile hike or something she did it and she brought in her little mini backpack and that's more than I did <laughs> I think the <laughs> longest was I did was days. like sixteen hike it was a one day and a lot of it was on this um, paved area in in Glacier actually to get to like, you know, six or whatever mile hike that was still gnarly, but it was really just the distance of getting out there. It was long. When you were at Zion, were you staying at that front camping area when you first come into the the park from the like so, the bottom of yeah, the hill? Yeah, you go right when you come into the park. Um and then there's one on your left that's like right there. And it was yep. the one that was a little bit to your right. It's just like it's just Families and families are cool when it's your family. And if you're like a 20 something year old trying to like smoke pot and write some songs, you know, it's not that cool. And also if you're trying to get inspired by like the nature and there's some person like pick up your rapper. No, 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 no. Or worse yet, they're actually just littering and being loud and they have a stroller. And I'm like, this doesn't feel very wild to me. You know what I mean? I feel like I'm at a theme park. Zion is one of the prettiest places around but the camping there is just awful (laughs) it's one of the worst of all the national parks that is one of my least favorite areas you're really crammed in um and there's just so many people unfortunately and i was there when it was busy so i know that that's not the best but i really like i did disperse camping outside of bryce in that area because it's close to like a lot of other stuff too and i went to arches and bryce from this awesome camp spot that was just like off the road somewhere near these green mountains. And that's all in the song. You know, that's where I was thinking of when I was dreaming of Utah. Yeah. We dream of Utah a lot. Have you made it through like the Moab area? That's another place Mm -hmm. on Fisher road where it's really pretty, but it's getting so crowded. Yeah. You know, I think that it's just the world, I guess I could be wrong. (laughs) And I don't know how much this has to do with banjos and your podcast at this point, but like, (laughs) I think the pandemic has 
put into perspective. I could be wrong because it could just be, you know, my perception of most privileged people around me that can afford to think about these kinds of things. But I Mm -hmm. think that for a lot of people, whether you're struggling through the pandemic or financially stable, it's just made a lot of people think about like what they really want to do. And I think a lot of people realize that it's cooler to work from home, but build your garden bed or like build the cool project you wanted to do. So like lumber went up, the prices for a lot of things that are like recreational and used to just be a small group of people's hobby is now I think everyone wants to do all these fun things. I wanted to start gardening. I wanted to start doing these things that I never really did before the pandemic. And I feel like traveling and being outside is a big one, right? Like the summer half of the nature spots in Tennessee were just like overrun with people because they don't have anything to do. And on top of it, when they get out there, they realize usually like, why don't we do this more? This is amazing. And I, I just don't think we're used, you know, we're used to people being stuck at a nine to five. And a lot of people still can't really do that fully. Here, almost every job now at this point can get back to work, but literally every job, actually, I can't think of one that isn't. Tennessee is pretty unique that way. But yeah, I don't know. You know, that's just it's like it sucks. Because yeah, everything is more even the traffic. I'm like, what happened to the time when there was no one in the road? That was way cooler. But now people are I think they're out to like live with a vengeance, you know, They're just like, I'm going to do what makes me happy. I'm going to build a jungle gym for my kids. I'm going to learn how to do this hobby that I've always wanted. I'm going to make kombucha. I'm going to, so all the supplies for these things are just lower, I think. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. The climbing areas have been insane this year, unless you get, you know, you're going to have to want to get in there to get away from people. But anything that's like close, like, oh, we could usually go and park a car and it's a couple of miles in or whatever. All those areas are just overrun now. I actually was out in, um, I was near Denver in this awesome, what's the valley? It has like a French name and it starts with a C. Not Clear Creek, can you? Oh, no, Poudre. Oh, Poudre. Yes, exactly. Poudre. 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 Is how I would say it. Yeah, Poudre. Yeah. They uh, call it Poudre, which it, I did. I, so I mispronounced it originally. Sorry, I'm just Poudre. plugging in my computer. Poudre. Yeah, I was at my friend... AJ is a great blues musician and very familiar with he's from Montrose. So, so you do play. uh, So yeah, the show's called live from banjo, but, um, and I've had a few really, really great banjo players on here. Um, but it's, it's definitely more of a musician podcast. Banjo is just kind of like my, Oh yeah. I've been waiting this whole time. I'm like, when, when do we get to talk about the banjo? Like, Ask me about calling him or no, I'm just kidding. I am. I'm going to ask you about it. I just, you know. I, I'm totally I, I I like the conversation to hopefully go in a, a smooth progression, but some days are worse and some days cats get out. But I love your new album and I, Thank you. one of the things about it, like I'm a big, big fan of like strong female voices and, and I really like that you play, you know, blues music and you have, you know, obviously a really well trained voice but there is kind of a tenor heart that allows you to kind of not get disconnected there's certain female like artists that are in such a soprano that it kind of almost goes disney princess even like when they're playing like bluesy or folksy stuff and it kind of takes away but i i really love your voice and think it really works well with that crossover from from blues and old time and and rock and so thank you um 
So the claw hammer banjo, I play a three finger style resonator, but I am more and more getting interested in playing claw hammer because I think there's kind of a punk rock thing to the claw hammer that allows you to kind of just more just kind of get into the music and and uh, feel it a little bit better. But how did you come across playing the banjo and then what what drove you claw hammer rather than than going three finger style? Um, I guess I was, I was working at McCabe's, which is like a folk shop in Los Angeles. And I had gotten in Travis picking. So I was just getting hip to folk music of the, you know, 19th and 20th century in general. Mm -hmm. Um, I had just got my hands on the anthology of American folk music and someone at McCabe's had suggested I look into Clawhammer. I was like, okay. And I did. And I loved it. I still love it. I think it's so pretty. I do want to learn how to do three finger style, but, um, Yeah. Hammer's where it's at for me. Yeah. It's just like you said, I, I want to learn it all. I want to do it all. But like where? <laughs> kind of. Yeah. I want to do two finger style too, honestly. Actually. Yeah. Pretty bad. Yeah. I know you're in Nashville and then, you know, Bronwyn, have you met Kyle Tuttle? Yes. We actually, especially during pandemic, we're like inseparable. We hung out. We were going to do a... <laughs> I don't want to spoil any plans, but we were planning to like record a double banjo record, actually, <laughs> where he played three finger style and I played claw hammer. And because he has some low bass banjos like in C and in D, mm-hmm. we just had all these arrangements of songs from all this time we had spent just picking like on his porch. And like, yeah, I'm, I'm good friends with Kyle. He's a, a great player. Yeah, he is. And he's just, uh, he's one of those people that just has a personality that you want to be around. He's a cool kid. But um, I was listening. Kid is the right word. I'm a, even though I'm 41, I am definitely a kid. Like I have not, I've never grown up. Yeah. I was thinking that to myself. I was in the post office with like some band t-shirt in my bands. And yeah. My hat, and I was like, <laughs> I'm nearly 30 years old. Why do I dress like this? I don't know. You know, it's a life choice and I've just decided to stick yeah. with it. Like, I'm kind of glad that I got into a certain style at a young age because I think it it's at least manageable just wearing like button up Western shirts or just tees in a, a pair of jeans. And I do wear Vans a lot, though. They're awesome. They are. And they're easy to put on and off. So, Kyle, I was listening to your music and I know that he's got the Kyle Tuttle band going on right now. And then he's doing the stuff with pool and gruel and he's got some of the things, but I know that he really loves just playing with a band. And I was hearing your music and like the kind of cross genres and stuff. And I was like, everything, even though you play the banjo, I was like, all of this would be great with a banjo. And so I was like, if she ever gets big, I kind of hope she adds a banjo to the band. And I was like, Kyle Tuttle, Oh, that's. I was like funny. Kyle Tuttle. Oh man, would, you have you should text him that. I you will. should text him that just because we literally have like band pictures of us two of us. Like we weren't gonna make an actual band; it was more of a yeah. pandemic duo. So who knows? That could be a project because things are just picking up mm-hmm. for everybody again, you know. So it, it like didn't make so much sense anymore. But it kind of is a nice thing that like maybe as worlds collide because I'm actually finding. Um, so I didn't know anything about like the jam grass scene at all. I only got hip to bluegrass like two mm-hmm. years ago, actually. And old time was like three and a half, four. When I met Kyle, he taught me about a lot 
of these bands that like, I don't know any of these people, you know what I mean? And I, I get the name scrambled sure. all the time. But um, I'm finding that there is a really receptive audience in that genre, even for the stuff mm-hmm. I'm doing, which is surprising me. But it, like, I should actually be hopefully going to Asheville for the Travis Book Happy Hour. That's great. So I don't want to jinx it, but we have definitely talked about it and I hope that it works out. I love him too. He's such a nice guy. He's another one of the- Yeah. Everyone is so nice. And that's why I was like, oh, you guys are just like a bunch of hippies that like want to play string band music. That's fucking great. I'm down. Like a lot of the bluegrass scene are either hippies or punk rock kids that somehow like made their way. Yeah. Yeah. And me too. <laughs> and I had, I've had all my, my years. I'm such a, I have such an eclectic love of music and that's why Pretty much if I like your music, then I don't care what your style is. I want to talk to you about music. And that's what the show is. So live from Banjo. Banjo is just like my, you know, my imagining of like what your North Star is or that place you're trying to get to is Banjo, Colorado. And that's my home here is like. Is that a real place? No. I was like, what? There's a Banjo in Colorado. I've talked to so many people that are here in Colorado and they're like, I've lived here my whole life and I didn't even know that that place existed. (laughs) And I'm like, well, if you just. Uh, if you want to go just south of Denver and come, <laughs> this is Bancho, Colorado right here is my home studio, Gosh. but it's more of an allegory than a, an actual physical place. But studying the banjo and playing the banjo and kind of getting into that music, do you feel like it's changing the way you're writing new tunes for your next album, which I, I think you're in the middle of kind of putting some stuff together, right? Yeah. And um, that's kind of actually what I was thinking about next. That just having talked about that is how the banjo started as a very much a side hobby and I didn't write in Clawhammer mm-hmm. ever. Um, I But I wrote my first two Clawhammer songs right before and on the tour that informed this record. And they're on, those are the ones that are on the record. And since then I have written more and I'm like, oh. And since then I've also really fallen in love with like a lot more old time, but also a lot more bluegrass. So it's sort of caused this very interesting fractioning of like my musical identity, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just difficult to navigate sometimes because some people want to hear the string band stuff from me and other people really want to hear a mix and other people want to hear just guitar. So it's a little tough. And I was battling with that when I would go on that tour and play these like four hour slots sometimes or three hour slots at a big bar. I have no issue playing alone. I like hold stages alone all the time, but it would really be interesting when I would go from guitar and rocking out or doing picking stuff to the banjo, which is just a very high register, very thin comparatively. Mm-hmm. I amplified it, but it doesn't sound the same as like a distorted guitar. So I was, I struggled with that solo a lot, but now, you know, I just, <laughs> I just played the station in for the first time, which was like the coolest thing ever. And, um, I had gotten a string band together right before pandemic that we just were able to focus on some of my originals, but mostly just like really great music. Mm-hmm. And that has been really fun. And I think that depending on what's right for what venue, the way I see myself, you know, if I were to be on a big stage at some festival is it would probably be a mixture of things, you know, like probably need a bass player who can do both. And I would probably take my banjo out for some tunes and get grassy, maybe have some fiddle people join. But I think my main, my main, the way I see myself is definitely more in the rock tradition. Mm -hmm. And that's with a trio. Um, I'm actually even playing with a duo, just my drummer on the 19th. And I'm like, let's like rock the fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, let's like mm-hmm. black keys this shit. Yeah. 
And because John is an air show and they're a jam band for the jam grass scene, he can actually adapt to my banjo playing too. So I might even just do like banjo and drums on the 19th. I'm just like trying a bunch of stuff out right now and it's really fun. And I don't want to be cornered into a genre or into an arrangement just because traditional bluegrass is done with these instruments. Like, cool. No one ever said I was traditional. You know what I mean? In any way. So same, I I dealt with that a lot. Like people see a solo resonator and they think it's going to be like a Robert Johnson act. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, that's not who I am. That's not what I sound like. It's not even really who I want to be. I think those people covered that market. I don't need to go in and be a solo blues person. Mm -hmm. Um, trying to recreate something that is untouchable in my opinion. I think we all just struggle with that because like you said, so many of us that ended up in the Americana and string tradition were like metalheads or mm-hmm. punk kids. And sometimes you miss being on a sweaty stage with like a cheap guitar between your hands and a PV amp and you're just like sweating. That's very different than, you know, playing a string band show for a big family affair at Bell's Bend or something. You know, like there's just a lot of different ways that music can exist. And I'm kind of open to like most of it, to be honest. I love the idea of a traditional little string band. I was in choir my whole life. So I actually really like vocal stuff where the singing is a big focus, which is why I like bluegrass. Blanking on the name of the song on your album, The Prayer. Prayer for the Blind. Prayer for the Blind. It's so beautiful. And you really, your vocals on that are, it's just one of those where it stands out for sure. Yeah. Thanks. That was definitely one that I was like just starting to write. And I just wanted to write something out of modal tuning. That was like the only goal I had when I set out to write that song. But then I was given really good writing material by this couple. We were on the border of Iowa and Nebraska camping and I like couldn't start my fire. They had sold me wet wood and the people next to me with this couple like took me under their wing for the evening and told me this crazy story about this woman's mother who was suffering from dementia. But it was like a really funny story. And she was laughing when she told it Mm -hmm. about how her mother thinks that the husband is cheating on her with a woman with two peg legs and that they go dancing. And I was like, can I write a song about this? Like... There's just some good imagery in there. And there's something so profoundly moving about as someone who loves their mother very much, like what it must be like to be a daughter or a son and watch the person that was your source of like everything start to to unravel and to have to depend on you. I think that's like pretty heavy shit. So that's kind of like what's behind the funny story is, is the idea. And that's why in the song I talk about mothers and daughters is, yeah, there's some intense stuff sometimes, you know, that you have to deal with. It's interesting though, like stories and telling stories and, you know, you, I think, write a lot from a first person perspective or use your, you know, emotions about what's going on in the world, but seem to kind of intertwine other people's stories into your music. And I, I don't know, I was talking to somebody else the other day about that, about how we kind of grab from all these different facets to write music. I think that for my first record, I didn't so much. I, or record, first EP before this one, like I think really reflected. Is that the six song EP one? No, this is called Troubled Sleep and I put it out in California. So it is six tracks, but it's not the one I put out this summer. I put out two EPs this summer just to try and get stuff out. This is what it like when I was first really getting into the slide stuff and wanted to like record something that reflected who I was at that point. And I wrote almost an entire record about one or two people and my specific horrible stories of having dated them because they were both addicts and that was really crappy. So I think that when I went on this tour, as someone who has written 
as a writer, like even in poetry or read a lot of literature and seen that that is obviously not the only way to write songs. I think I really wanted to challenge myself to write about places and people and things that aren't just me and my heartbreak. So, so I did. And I think it worked out okay. But that's why I'm proud of this record too, is that it's, it is me trying to consciously put different things into my songwriting besides just my raw emotion which people like that and they like that first record because it is very raw and it's very angry and it's very sad and hurt. And a lot of people feel that. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it's a really, really difficult, if not almost more difficult sometimes to write about a feeling like the one that you get when you're staring over the Badlands. What is that feeling? How do you describe it without sounding cliche? How do you describe the Badlands without sounding cliche? So that is that balance I think you're describing where I still use my own reactions because they're unique. So those are the things I'll notice about that situation or the story I was told. But I really did try and like weave in some more objective things because I think it makes for more interesting song material after as a writer, I'm not saying that even listeners care, mm-hmm. to be honest. That, like, I don't know what people connect with more, but as a writer, it felt really good to try and challenge myself and get out of just like, I feel pain. Here's that pain in this flavor. Here's the pain in a different flavor. Like, you know, humans, we struggle a lot. So a lot, lot to write about. I don't know if we is too big of a word. I struggle a lot. No, I, I'm a mess. I've had some issues, you know, depression, anxiety. You know, there's no shame in that, like, at all. I don't, I think we're past, hopefully, the days of people being too scared to admit that they've been depressed. Like, most people I know are like, yeah, yep, depression, it's a real thing. Yeah, I've just gotten to be open about everything. Well, you have the banjo right there, and nobody ever plays music on this show, and it seemed like you were here to be able to play some music, so I thought maybe... It's right there. Maybe pick us a tune. But, but I love this thing. It saved, it saved my ass a lot. It's, it's pretty cool. It's the gold tone. Which tune I do mean, you want to pick for us? I don't know. What's the one you sing and play on the new album? Is it two? Uh, should I just do that for the blind? I love that song. It's already in the tuning. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. I have my morning voice. So, <clears throat> hello, everybody. Secrets that scatter on the hill 
Mothers forgive them, they know not what they do. Daughters in turn, we will always follow you. This is the first song I'm singing today, so it's a little rough, but, you know, you get the idea. That was great. Well, there you go. You've been a two-time first for the show. You were the uh, <laughs> first person that I found out based off of another guest, and you played music. I'll take it. Breaking the glass ceiling. This is phenomenal. See, yeah. bad day turned better. Okay. Well, I hope your kitty comes back. Me too. I'm going to probably have to go walk around the block again look for her. All right. Well, we'll just hope for a little Luna to walk through the door here shortly. Thank you. Appreciate that. Do you have any wisdom for the world or, or words that you want to go out on before we leave? I I guess the wisdom I have is just really personal and it's been years of struggling, but it's super simple and it sounds really obvious, just like a lot of wisdom, I guess. And we kind of just touched on it earlier in this talk was the reason that I'm not a traditionalist and that I'm not a purist. And I think that this doesn't necessarily apply to people that grew up steeped in one tradition. If that's you, don't listen to this. But for everybody else, which is most everybody else, I just felt tortured a long time by all the different identities. But I think that if you validate all of them instead of trying to choose one or trying to morph one into a thing that makes sense in a genre, you'll just be so much happier. Like I am. I don't know. I don't feel like making punk music anymore. But I can still reference it however I want, you know, if, whether it's in a lyric or in a beat of something or in the tone of my guitar. And that you shouldn't be afraid, you know, and that like Bill Monroe and a lot of our heroes and heroines were really forward thinking for their time. And they seem classic to us now. But back then they were playing these crazy things that like Hank Williams, you know, all these people that were putting blues in the country and the bluegrass like that's pretty cool. You know, and even all the blues people that are constantly like pigeonholed into this thing or or primitivized if you will like mm -hmm. they're made to seem like they just sat and didn't even know what they were playing and it just was so great because it came out from a feeling place it's like many of those people really honed their sound and their craft and were playing something that felt true to them so that's like my wisdom is ooh, that's what I hope that I'm achieving you know little by little as I try and connect with my truer self as I get older is just it doesn't have to make sense to someone who's trying to put this on a chart this has to make sense to like me when I'm writing it and you hopefully when you're listening and that just makes it a lot easier. Well, I think that's awesome because yes, I'm definitely about being true to oneself. It's important because when you're not, you can go into some dark and dreary places. And even when you are being true to yourself, you can get to dark and dreary places. So there's no reason to add fuel to the fire. Yeah, totally. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. It was great having you on. It was nice to meet you. I'm going to be out. This, in, yeah. I'm going to be out on that side of the country. Probably a fewer more times in the next year, especially as this thing you starts know what's opening gonna happen. up. Triple banjo, Hank. Oh yeah, I I will be just not good, but I try a lot. I'm not good either, but I still made stuff that sounds good. I know, I know. It's okay. It's it is. I love <laughs> I love music. Well, like I said, it was, it was really nice to meet you, and hope your cat comes back soon. And Thank feel you. free to reach out or stay in touch. I'll, I will. Yeah, I appreciate you. It was nice talking to you, man. Nice talking to you. All right. Yeah.
बाय seems to be around yes Ben Harper yes holy shit I got one right just got one we are in episode what 17 20 20 wow okay there's a lot of things I get wrong in this podcast but that is the first thing I've ever gotten right uh in terms of songs I think so maybe there was one on there are we really 20 episodes deep this is number 20 we should have baked a cake or some shit or had someone bake us a cake because that's not happening it would have meant that I did it Right. I was going to say, what is this? COVID times where people just have time on their hands to bake cakes and junk? Hey, Crystal. Hi. How are you doing? Uh, Good. I'm back to work. Just got back from vacation. So things are kind of weird and jostly, but I'm getting back into it. So we are here to talk about Miss Christina Vane. Yes. And Luna. Well, I don't think we're going to talk about Luna. Okay. I'm still a little bit worried about her. We're still worried about Luna, but she is of Italian descent. Well, I guess Italian Guatemalan, but she was born in Italy. And so I asked her about Italian cuisine. Yes, you did. In the North. And she felt like that was a very high pressure question. It seemed like. Did not want to spend an entire hour talking about (laughs) Italian cuisine. Listen, Marcus, I'm not Rachel Ray. This isn't my job. And it's very understandable. Fair. Uh, Yeah. It probably took me an hour to decide how to spend less than 10 minutes talking about it. So end up with some Italian cuisine real quick. Good. Is there a list? There's, it's kind of a, it's a roaming list. So while Southern Italian food is driven by the sea, Northern Italian food embraces the land. The Lombardia and Piemonte regions of Northern Italy are ideal for raising cattle and their cuisine reflects as such. The tomato sauces are replaced with creamy alfredos and butter takes the place of olive oil. I tried to find something that was succinct because literally there's just pages and pages. And she, mm-hmm. like she said, like every little region and province has their own bit of food. So I just did like a quick history of how like the food came to be. Okay, let me preface this. I found a good, succinct history of Italian cuisine that I'm going to read. And I forgot to write down the website that I got it from. Are you not going to cite your source? I'm not citing source. I couldn't find it again. There are professors listening to this podcast somewhere, I'm sure, that are like about to itch their own skin off just hearing you say that. No, they don't care. It's a fucking podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. At least I'm not making this shit up. Okay, so it is no secret that Italian cuisine is beloved around the world. Yet most diners are not aware of the rich history behind these tasty dishes. The country's ancient inhabitants, the Etruscans, originally subsisted of a diet of meat, soups, and variations of cereal. They invented olive oil and a long line of other staples in traditional Italian cuisine. Including Fruit Loops. I think Fruit Loops were part of the original Italian cuisine. Greeks and Romans. So we're going to fast forward to the 8th century, and the Greeks had colonized the southern portion of the country, and their primary foods included breads, vegetables, fruit, meat, fish, corn-based cereal concoctions, lupines, dry figs, and pickled olives. I don't, what is a L-U-P-I-N-E-S? No idea. 
Not a L-U-P-N-I-S. Crystal, your mind is always in the gutter. No. Ew. We are just going to assume that it's a variation of legume in this context. Okay. And since we're not citing sources and no one cares because it's a podcast, we're just going to do that. A lot of cereal discussion already <laughs> in the Italian cuisine. I didn't know that the Italians were known so much for their cereals. They the, really like their Fruit Loops over there. The Greeks consumed also their fair share of walnuts and almonds, both of which are still commonly used in contemporary Sicilian dishes. Sicilian dishes? Wait, did I say dishes? You sure did. The Romans centered their meals on meat, fish, vegetables, bread, fruit, and wine. So food. No matter what, bread was consumed with each meal. So this is the invasion. Roman Empire reached the verge of collapse. Imperialists from Northern Europe traveled down the Italian peninsula, hoping to gain a larger portion of land, also seeking massive amounts of cereal. And wine. They brought along smoked meat, smoked fish, salted cod, and variations of casseroles. Arabs in the southern portion of Italy introduced coffee, artichokes, a wide range of spices at the same time. So Arabic coffee is known as like one of the stronger coffees. Mm-hmm. Is that that's where the Italian espresso comes from. It's like the oh, strong, okay. dark espresso actually originally came from the Arabs. The French, Spanish, and Austrians also had a considerable influence on Italian food. And the Spanish invaders introduced the tomato or the tomato. No one calls it that. It's in a song. No. You say tomato, I say tomato. Nope, we're just going to move on from this that. This vegetable soon served as the foundation of Italy's delicious cuisine. Wait, did they call it a vegetable on the website that you looked into? Everybody knows that a tomato is a fruit. You know what? It goes back and forth. Does it? It does. Okay. When I was a kid, I thought it was a vegetable. And yeah, then but in that's because you were a kid. That it was a fruit. But then we, like, our, you talk to your parents, and the reason you thought it was a fucking vegetable was because your parents told you it was a vegetable. You know what? As kids, we also thought our parents were smart, and look where we are now. My dad's still pretty smart. <laughs> you only say that because your dad listens to the podcast. He doesn't. He doesn't listen anymore. <laughs> that's true. He doesn't. <laughs> he, uh, I scared him way the fuck away from this podcast. <laughs> so we got. Two little more things. <laughs> my favorite joking. part. My favorite part is the pizza queen. Okay, let's go to the pizza queen. Okay, Italians think pizza. The original version of the scrumptious food was quite simple compared to today's elaborate concoctions. Pizza's origins date all the way back to 1889 when King Umberto the First Queen Margarita traveled to Naples. The country's best pizza aiolo was asked to create pizza for these royal visitors. I. Uh, I should have probably asked uh, asked Christina how you say pizza yolo, pizza yolo. Maybe I bet she could pronounce it a little bit more. Pizza yolo. I don't think that's it. Pizza yolo. Nope. No, you're just being. No, um, that's how they. That's how they don't. I, I don't. I don't think that's it. Mamma mia. N- no. Pizza no. yolo. At this point, is that kind of racist or is that? No, I'm just imitating. It how- feels icky. Well. The country's best pizziolo was asked to create pizza for these royal visitors. His best creation was rather basic, consisting of dough, mozzarella cheese, tomato, and basil. He created this style of pizza in honor of Italy's national colors. Queen Margarita enjoyed the pizza to the point that she wrote a letter of gratitude to the pizziolo, inspiring him to call the pie Pizza Margarita. The simple but delicious version of pizza is still consumed across the globe today, and will likely continue to be cherished by the masses for years to come. 
I'm going to put that little nugget of information in my pocket so I can use it later. Margarita. I'm not going to say it like that. I actually had a friend in college. Her name was Margarita. But does she do that hand motion? The hand motion that nobody she can talked see like but that. me She right was now? like, you fucking Americans. And she smoked oh, all the time. And she, yeah, she was cool. She sounds feisty. She was. One more thing that I found on lifeinitaly.com. Does it have my to do with pizza? Here. Can I talk about my favorite pizza? Is it some gross version? It's no, it's the best pizza. And I feel like not enough people know about this Is kind of pizza. Is it the one with sauerkraut on it? Yes. Canadian bacon and sauerkraut pizza. It needs to be more of a well-known thing so I can get it in Colorado because right now the only place I can find it is in Iowa. And it makes me mad that I have to travel 800 miles for pizza. Margarita would be like, stupid fucking American. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> All right. So, um... One more thing that I found interesting is on lifeinitaly.com. So I did cite my source. Good job. And this is under history of Italian cuisine in the Middle Ages. Many may not know that dried pasta, today a quintessentially Italian thing, was brought to the country specifically to Sicily by the Arabs, who appreciated the fact that it was easy to carry and preserve, hence perfect for long sea trips and sieges. From ports of Sicily, dried pasta made its way to those of Naples, and as well as France and Spain. So contrary to what we hear often when talking about the history of pasta, it didn't come from Marco Polo, it came from the Arabs. Do people really say it came from Marco Polo? He said that Marco Polo brought the noodles to the shore. I've never heard that said before. Yeah, it's in a song. Okay. I don't know if it is, but people say it. Okay, so enough about Italian food. But now I want pizza. You always want pizza. I want pizza. For someone who can't eat gluten or dairy, you sure do consume a lot of pizza. Steve, she touched my peppy. No. Michael Keaton, Multiplicity? Nope. Came out in 1996? Mm, yeah, no. No idea. Directed by Harold Ramis? I don't know. Ghostbusters? No, is this even on your fact sheet? We should probably move on from this. Okay. That just came out of your brain, didn't it? But Michael Keaton is one of the greatest actors of all time. Is that true? Yes. <laughs> I don't know that it is. Night Shift, Mr. Mom. You're doing this off the Johnny top of Dangerously. Your head. This is really like... Gung-ho. You should remember my birthday if you can remember all of this. Pacific Heights, Batman. <laughs> God damn it. Jack Frost. Okay, let's forget that one. <laughs> yeah, let's keep going. Okay, Christina Vane and I shared a few years of childhood in England, not at the same time, but similar ages. And I actually wanted to ask her about donating blood because I can't oh, donate yeah, right. blood. And I was thinking, oh, there's such a huge age gap between us, mm -hmm. like roughly 10 years. So I was like, I, I shouldn't ask about it. But then I was like, I wonder how long this is going to go on. And I wanted to do some more information. So I looked up and I should have asked her about it because uh, it turns out that there is some overlap. Okay. So this is not confuts, but the reason that I can't give blood, and this is from an article in the U.S. National Library of Medicine from August 28 to 1999, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has imposed a ban on blood donations from anyone who has spent more than six months in Britain from 1980 to 1997 because of the possible risk of transmitting the human form of bovine spongiform encephalopathy, known as variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, also known as mad fucking cow disease, which I will tell you. <laughs> they don't put it in the medical journals as <laughs> no, no, no. literally they, mad fucking cow <laughs> disease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but no, but I, they did not mention mad cow disease. They put, they put in also known as Kreutzfeldt Jacob disease. And I was like, it's fucking mad cow disease. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was crazy. They didn't put that anywhere, but the exclusion dates coincide with the time when exposure to CJD was considered to be at its peak in the United Kingdom. The American Red Cross estimates that the ban will cut U.S. blood donations by 2.2% at a time when experts are already predicting severe nationwide blood shortages. This was back in 1999, of course. Variant CJD has affected about 40 people in the world, including 39 in Britain. It has never been transmitted through the blood except during experiments in which it was injected into the brains of mice. But the FDA said that it was concerned that scientists have not fully ascertained how the disease is spread. So people who made limited visits to Britain will not be affected by the van, but people who visited repeatedly between 1980 and 1997 will have to add to their trips to see if they're under the six-month limit. The ban also applies to people of other nationalities who may have lived in Britain during the time in question. The FDA estimates that up to 250,000 donors could be affected by the new regulations. So I feel like I'm in pretty a small elite group there. Yeah, yeah. Have we? Did you happen to do any current research to... I, I did. And just in this last year during like early COVID, they lifted the ban for most of it. Okay. For like all and the people f- that added it up. And it, have they found anything? No, but we're getting to that. Okay. The only remaining travel deferrals will be for individuals who lived three months or more in the United Kingdom from 1980 to 1996, or those who have spent a total of five years or more in France and Ireland, 1980 to 2001. So I'm pretty sure Christina gets the double whammy on blood donation. Don't donate blood. Yeah. And so I think she was born in 91 and I could be wrong up down a year. But so she was there from two to five, Mm -hmm. which is 93 to 96. So either way, she was there at the height of the mad cow disease. Yeah. Which I think the peak was in 93. But mad cow disease total only affected 40 people. 40 people in the world, 39 in Britain. Oh, wow. Okay. Remember when we used to get like pandemics under control before they became a big fucking deal? Well, that's because they don't really exactly understand the spread of mild cow disease. And that's why I'm not allowed to give blood. I mean, unless you inject it into the person's brain, that's going to do it. Yeah. Don't do that. Well, they did it to mice. Also, don't do that. You just wished you had lived in one of those countries, don't you? It doesn't affect me because I'm not giving blood no matter what. Then you would have an excuse to never donating blood. Right. But you're not going to anyway. Did you know, I I didn't realize this. I have a client that was telling me today that she has, she's had COVID. So she has been able to donate antibodies. Didn't realize that was a thing. Also not going to do that, but whoa. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I looked up your phobia of needles as a result of going (laughs) on this flight. Okay. So. It has a weird name that's really hard to pronounce. So I looked up your phobia of needles. Which is really fucking real. Full on phobia. Yeah. And it's called trypanophobia because you'd be tripping for real. <laughs> I don't know if it's actually tripping, but it's T-R-Y-P-A-N. And I just, I think. Do you want to describe to our listeners the way that you describe to your dad the uh, absolute shit show that you witnessed the day that you took me to get my vaccine? I thought that my wife was searching for her next hit of crack because she was clawing at her chest 
and I think her lips may have turned blue. Trying to take my shirt off. She was kind of pulling at her shirt in an uncomfortable way and just sitting there answering questions that she wasn't really doing anything about. She just kept saying yes. It was it was kind of it's pretty crazy. But trypanophobia, as we're going to call it, is the extreme fear of medical procedures involving injections or hypodermic needles. It tends to be more common in children and may lessen as people grow older and gain more experience having medical procedures. Which is not the case. Injections (laughs) involving needles. Yeah. So I think like 20% of people have it through like. Into adulthood. Yeah. And then 10% of adults have it, which seems like an extreme amount because that would mean that one in 10 people were flipping their shits over shots and what they say is most people that have it just don't go to the doctor so you don't see them but supposedly 10 percent of adults have it but i think you have one of the severe cases of it and it was added to the dsm in 1994 even though 10 percent of population supposedly has it oh now if i can just get one single nurse to add it to my freaking medical records well you can go get ssris for it now because it's on the dsm I don't know what that means. Uh, Uptake inhibitors. Oh, like drugs for it. Yeah. So she studied comparative literature at Princeton and she said she could have been a Duolingo writer. And I thought that maybe she was talking about. Like a web developer. Well, no, I thought because they do like writers write for this app. And then. I'll be honest. When I heard it, I thought the same thing. Okay. Yeah, but I heard Duolingo and I was like, I'm going to guess somebody that goes to Princeton is probably not going to go work for Duolingo, but you know, never know. I felt a little stupid, but at the same time, I was like, I looked up Duolingo writer, mm-hmm. everything came up with the friggin' app and it was <laughs> like job after job of working for Duolingo as a writer. And I felt a lot better after that. Okay, good. But yeah. I also looked up, she had asked, like, I don't know if I've ever used the app and I said, you know, it's kind of a game for kids but at least they're learning at least they're learning spanish a little bit seems like the internet's pretty sure that it's a pile of shit uh, for learning but what i will say is that i still think i hold that it's it's like a game yeah and that kids learn and i refreshed some of my spanish with duolingo before we went down to mexico uh-huh. and i was able to use some of that while i was down there so yeah you were almost conversational down there I wouldn't go that far, but I was having conversations <laughs> with people. I mean, I did have conversations with I people. I couldn't understand a word that was happening. So it sounded good to you. Yes, it did. Okay. She did not watch Dr. House, who I had said, I thought he was at like Plainsboro or it was uh, Princeton Plainsboro Teaching Hospital is the fictitious teaching hospital <laughs> where House is set. It is located in. Princeton, New Jersey on Prospect Street, as seen on Chase's GPS when he rushes to the hospital in after hours. A hospital, presumably, is located near the neighboring township of Plainsboro. Princeton University's first campus center is used in the aerial screenshot. Okay. I think that while listening to that part, I imagined her and I having a very similar reaction to that question. Why the fuck are you asking that? (laughs) Because Princeton Plainsboro, okay, house. No, no. That, I think that's kind of one of your obscure references thing that you do. Where you're like, do you know about this one thing that only I really pay attention, any attention to whatsoever? How many of you guys watched Dr. House? He was awesome. He, it was a great show. No one paid attention to where it was located. Except for you, babe. He comes up a lot on the show, Crystal. So um, 
she said that she got inspired to play the slide guitar from watching Sam Green in the Midnight Heist, but didn't know what they had gotten up to. I found one EP from 2018 called Onset Return on Spotify. And she said that she loved their song Miles Away and the album did not have the version of Miles Away. So I did not, was not able to look that up. But I thought maybe it was a cover because she said Miles Away and I instantly thought of Josh Ritter's Miles Mm -hmm. Away. And then there's Phil Cook's Miles Away, Quantum Leap Back to Taylor's episode. And then... There was also we're still a, not going to do this quantum leap thing that you I mean, are I into. Just, I just did it. So. No, there was an old yeah 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 song also from their first EP that was called Miles Away. Okay, could have been any of those, or it could have been none of those. Right, but Sam Green, I did see that in the fall of 2020, he was doing a Kickstarter to get a new album together. So he was still kicking around in 2020. Not anything to do with Kickstarter kicking around was just accidental, not a pun or anything. But uh, I didn't see any news after that. So either he's in the studio, the Kickstarter went successfully, or no um, updates. Don't know. I hope Sam. Okay. Hey, Bubba, we need your collar off. I asked about the slide and if she felt like something was lost in that instrument. And she uh, she did not feel the same. She felt same same for all instruments but i still stand by that and one of my favorite live albums of all time is ben harper's live from mars Uh it's one of my favorite live albums and i went to see like six seven or eight shows on that tour when they recorded that album and when i listened to the live recording of it and that was pre-miked it was they knew they were recording that whole tour and it's still like it, there's something missing there. So I stand by my personal opinion that it's particularly the slide that it has something that gets lost. Cause I, I think there's sometimes where bands, certain guitars and singing, like where you listen to an album and you're like, go see them and you're like, Oh my God, that's what it sounds like. Uh-huh. And I just don't feel like I ever get that with when I love a slide player and then I go see them. It's always like it's so much more impactful and i used to remember when i was a kid going to ben harper shows in my early 20s i would sometimes close my eyes when he was playing Mm -hmm. so it was nothing about physically seeing him because it's just like embracing the music and i really feel like there's something that's just me personally well you know what marcus you're you're allowed to have feelings i have my own personal opinion Uh uh-huh she said something about listening to jjkoe and i assumed that that was like a radio station or something and I did a lot of different searches of what JJKOE okay. was, and I could not find it. So I don't know if I misheard her. Are you laughing because you know what it is? No. God, no. Okay. Have you talked to me before? I of course have. I don't know so what this I is. So I thought I was like, I was, I was like, oh my gosh, is this the one time when <laughs> Is this the one a, thing where Crystal knows this one obscure? And I'm just, and I'm just stupid, and I, it's like, yeah, JJKOE. Um, Dumb, no, I, I guess. Could, I could not find JJKOE. But she also said all her influences were dead. And she mentioned Robert Johnson. Uh, he was alive from 1911 to 1938. And he's like the king of Delta Blues. I mean, 1911 to 1938? Yeah, that seems he young. He died very young. <laughs> seems real young. I feel like he died young. So I guess that's right. Because I feel like he fell into that whole thing with Kurt Cobain. And Except Morrison. for decades before. 
Right. But I think he's like, does that track it actually being 27 years old? Isn't, wasn't that a thing with like Kurt Cobain and Janis Joplin and yeah, that's what I was just talking about. The one with the hair, Jimi Hendrix. No, she was a girl. She was British. Jim Morrison. Also not girls. Amy Winehouse. Amy Winehouse. But I wished I had mentioned some of my favorite female like blues guitarists from back in the day. Sister Rosetta Tharp. And she is like watching old videos of her and stuff. She's super cool mm-hmm. and was a badass. And uh, and then there is Memphis Minnie. But Rosetta Tharp was 1915 to 1973. And Memphis Minnie was 1895 to 1973. So she made it a little bit older. Mm-hmm. But Sister Rosetta Tharp is one of the first people that ever recorded distortion on her guitar on an album, which became like punk and blues and all the all the people use the distortion. But yeah, she was one of the originals. Interesting. Yeah, she's super cool. You should watch some videos. Maybe I'll put a video. I'll put a video in the link for you guys. There you go. I'll find one, one that I like. So if you read the notes, look up Sister Rosetta Tharp. I think one of my favorite parts of actually talking to her. And was when she came alive a little bit was when I brought up her trip through the West and Midwestern oh, states yeah. in the desert in Wyoming. I like the little tangent she went on about camping in the national parks. <laughs> yeah. She was not, not in, yeah, thrilled with the idea of camping in the national parks. It not, does sound romantic. It does. Initially, yes. Until you get there Until and you realize get there and that. And it really is. Now, granted, when you camp with children, like we do sometimes um, camping in the national parks is fantastic because you have so many amenities there. It makes it really easy breezy. Um, and the amenities I, we are good. We don't even like it usually with Danny. Well, yeah, but like it's a little bit easier to just like, you know, wash your dishes cause there's a little sink there and you know, to when take a we small child. Those? We even bring we have, like a portable sink. We do, but I have used these resources in the past and found that when camping with children, Camping in the national parks is actually a little bit nicer. Nicer and easier than dispersed camping with small children. All right. And absolutely, if she comes to Colorado and wants to go backpacking, I would happily take her. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's it. You got anything you want to talk about? So I did stalk her Instagram uh, looking for an update on Luna. I'm sorry. I'm still stuck on this. I know. No, I'd be very concerned if I were her. Did you find out? No, there's nothing posted. You should have reached out, babe. I know. And I felt really bad. Because how long ago was the actual interview? I think it was like a month ago. Okay. This, the night that I did this interview Mm -hmm. was the night where I had stayed up for 42 hours straight and then I got four hours of sleep and then did her interview. Oh, okay. And so I was, I went like dead to the world shortly thereafter her interview. (laughs) Just went catatonic as soon as the app went down from the. Yeah. I tried to like amp up. I'd gotten up a couple hours early to like get myself alive. Uh Yeah before her interview, but I was, I was struggling. Yes, you were. But the one thing that we haven't talked about, she played a live song on the show. Yes. Oh my God. She did. And that was, it it was really, really neat. Her voice is phenomenal. It is. Very cool. And she's a flautist. I hate that word. I don't know why it's it's my favorite. It's like one of my, it's, it's next to penist. (laughs) Um, It's my favorite. It's flautist. Okay. It's not like my favorite instrument. I mean, no, I just love, like saying the word. I love Jethro Tull and all. Did you not like Jethro Tull? Sitting on a park bench. Bum, bum, bum. Okay. Eyeing little girls with bad intent. Oh. Oh, Aqualung. God. No. 
I don't know that song and I'm really upset about it. That is very problematic. So I think that, but that's all I have. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I felt like there was a lot of food history in this episode. There's a lot of food history. She just wanted to talk about her, <laughs> She's her like, banjo. She's thought, like, what the fuck? I thought I signed up to do a banjo podcast. Why can we, can we just talk about banjos? Why are you asking me about pasta? This isn't picky fingers. Is it? I thought, I thought I was on picky fingers. No, Marcus, I do not know the origin <laughs> origin of chicken parm. Can we just talk about my banjo, please? Yes. All right. Well, um, next week we have a, another Nashville resident and, uh, He's got some stuff coming out. So yeah, we know that we know that. And we have a couple of good guests coming up as interviews that I've got coming up and my first live interview. You get to be in a room with a real live human. And then in a couple of weeks, I hope you all are going to be at Ford Festival in Lafayette, Georgia, because I'm going to be doing a live interview with John Stickley. And that is going to be at 530 on Friday, May 28th at Ford Festival before John plays on stage on the main stage. And happy late Mother's Day to all you mamas and grandmas and dog moms and stepmamas. And what other kind of mamas are there? Plant mamas? I guess they're, I don't know. I I don't know. I don't know in like a same sex household. Is it just Father's Day for everybody? Or do you do some people transition that role of like a... I think probably every household makes their own decisions on that. So it could be, could be a male for Mother's Day as well. Yep. So there we go. That's another person that it could be. Any kind of mamas. Yep. Or whatever. Whatever you are. Yeah. And put a shot in your arm, even if you have a trip to trip to out phobia. Uh, even if you be tripping. Yeah. Like Crystal. <laughs> Get that vaccine. Get the vaccine. And then you can go to places like Mexico. Yeah. Or concerts. Or concerts. Yeah. Or you can go do live interviews. All right. And... Just remember, kid, we're all in this together. <laughs>